As December dawned in 1972, there were certain things of which you could be sure. If you turned on the radio, you'd hear some funky music playing, Roberta Flack, The Fifth Dimension. If you wanted to talk politics, you were in for a rumble. The Vietnam War still hadn't ended. Richard Nixon was still in the White House. And in terms of what you'd see out on the streets, not a brown fringe vest or a groovy green button-up jumpsuit or some sensible Sansabelt slacks, but also, aside from the fashion, pop culture, and political discourse, the other thing you knew in December of 72, the Miami Dolphins were the best pro football team on the planet. This is Josh Lewin, and this is our look back at the NFL's only perfect season. The Dolphins at this point had already wrapped up the AFC East title. They had amassed a gaudy record of 11 wins and no losses. And at this point, Coach Don Shula was facing his weekly task of preventing letdown. 11-0 with the next three games basically meaningless in terms of standings and playoff seating. Now the team was heading up to suburban Boston to play a team that was 2-9. So how do you light a fire if you're the coach? Well, yeah, the Patriots had indeed lost eight straight. But Don Shula found motivation by reminding the Dolphins players they had yet to win in New England since he had been named head coach. Not a resume bullet point the coach was eager to have. So the players were indeed very ready. And the weather forecast was unseasonably warm for New England. Only for that Sunday of that week, with highs in the low 50s that day. It had been 30 on Friday, 30 on Saturday, would drop to 20 on Monday. But for the Dolphins, Mother Nature rolled out a red carpet for the team with the turquoise numbers on their backs. Miami, a two-touchdown favorite on the road. And why not? They played New England four weeks prior. They embarrassed them 52 to nothing. But this one started slowly with just a couple short field goals. In fact, you can't get a shorter field goal make than 10. Back then, the goalposts were very close to the goal line, not set back 10 yards as they are today. So, yes, Garrow Yepremian chipped one in with the ball spotted at the one to help build the first quarter lead. And then a nice, long, methodical 89-yard touchdown drive made it 13-0 when Jim Kick carried it at home. Paul Warfield had set up the score with a 22-yard catch down to the one one day after his 30th birthday. Warfield played only about a half this game, but showed he was healthy with three receptions for 89 yards. He had missed a couple weeks with a bad ankle and had only one touchdown all year. Warfield had been brought in from Cleveland as a field-stretching Pro Bowl athlete at wide receiver. Two-time letterman in track and field at Ohio State. He was a broad jumper, a hurdler, and a sprinter. He excelled as a broad jumper. He had a personal best of 26 feet 2 inches, was an Olympic prospect before he decided to play pro football and get drafted in the first round by his hometown Browns. Anyway, Warfield's big catch had set the Dolphins up for their only first-half touchdown. And believe it or not, that's as many as the Patriots had. Jim Plunkett, the youngster out of Stanford, found Tom Reynolds for a 36-yard score, and the halftime tally was a mere 13-7 lead for Miami. But then, all was right with the world again coming out of the locker room. Vern Danaherter started the second half with an interception. He took off for the goal line, was actually slowed down by his own teammate Manny Fernandez, who was, as he said, blind as a bat. The two big defensive linemen basically played bumper cars for a bit, and then a herder, the big old country boy from Iowa, was caught from behind at the 11. 
in a 12-year NFL playing career, this would be his only interception. And Vern Den Herter remembered very fondly by his teammate Dick Anderson. Well, Vern Den Herter, uh, again, you know, we, we had defensive backs, you had linebackers, and you had linemen. And so um, the, the real key in that in 1972 was we had very, very few uh, injuries and, and only replaced one or two players um, that whole, whole season. And the other remarkable part was the fact that Bob Greasy got hurt on offense and Earl Morrow came in and won all those games. So, um, you know, that showed you how, how teamwork can work. Den Herder, number 83, Manny Fernandez, number 75. They were the keynote guys up front, no doubt. Two very different backgrounds. Den Herder from Sioux Center, Iowa, his ancestry Dutch. Fernandez from Northern California with his ancestry not Latino, but Spanish. The Andalusia region of Spain is where his grandparents had come from. And his parents ended up in Hawaii and outside of Oakland to raise a son that would grow up to be able to squat more than 850 pounds. That last name of Fernandez in Miami, a fun little source of confusion for some. Here's Manny. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm second generation American. <laughs> my, my folks were both born. My, my dad was born in Hawaii, which at the time was a U.S. territory. Uh, my mother was born in Mountain View, California. Uh, my grandparents immigrated from Spain uh, down around through the Straits of Magellan up to Hawaii. And uh, I should say my great-grandparents uh, migrated to there and my grandparents were their children. And they settled in the Hawaiian Islands in the 1880s and 90s. Um, this was long before the Panama Canal. <laughs> and uh, my grandfather's, I don't know the exact history from both sides of the family, but sometime in the 19 teens, 1915-17s, around there, they migrated to California from the Hawaiian Islands and raised their families there. And uh, my mother's side of the family moved into the Monterey, right into Monterey. And uh, my grandfather was a merchant. He had a small, I guess you'd call it bodega. Um, and next door was a shoe repair shop. He was a cobbler by trade, but he did both when he got to Monterey. From a shoe repair to shoe law, ultimately for Manny Fernandez, he was an international man of mystery, as Austin Powers might have said back in the early 70s. Manny's teammate, Bob Hines, was intrigued by him for sure. Uh, he was, uh, of course, he's from uh, the Bay Area, where I'm, I, was, I was living in the Menlo Park myself at the time, in the Bay Area, and he lived across the bay on San Leandro. And of course, you know he's part of the Hells Angels or something like that, was the rumor had it. And... Uh, but Manny was a hell of a guy. He was just a really normal guy. He was just did his own thing, and and uh, I was very proud to be working next to him. That front three, Hines rotating with Bill Stanfill, Fernandez, Dan Herter as the anchors, all guys who could stop the run as part of that 3-4 look to the defense that Bill Arnsparger ran out there every week. So anyway, a couple plays after the very surprising Vern Dan Herter pick, not what you'd expect from a D lineman in a 3-4, 
Earl Morrill found Jim Mandich for a three-yard score. The pass looked a lot like the one that had beaten the Vikings back in Week 3, and the score was 20-7 now. Mandich, who, like Warfield, was from suburban Cleveland, was just 24 years old, having bucked the Buckeye tradition for college. He played instead for arch-rival Michigan. He would play eight wonderful seasons in Miami before finishing up with a forgettable year as a Pittsburgh Steeler. 13-point lead for Miami after that Mandich touchdown, and soon after, a Doug Swift interception led to a beautiful 14-yard pass from Morrill to Marlon Briscoe, and that made it 30-7 after three quarters in the books. Now, at that point, it was time for Jim Dalgazo and the substitutes. Sounds like a popular 1972 band, doesn't it? Opening for Strawberry Alarm Clock, Jim Dalgazo and the substitutes. The long-haired, mutton-chop, mustached backup quarterback thrilled to get in in front of a huge pass list. The guy with the thick New England accent was actually playing in New England. It was bittersweet because, you know, I get in the game and, and we scored it. We did score a touchdown, but I also threw an interception deep in our own end of the field and, and they scored a touchdown. So that was that was the one game I played with the Dolphins. After the game in Miami where I had the two touchdowns, it was the one game I played as a Dolphin that I really had more negative plays than, than positive plays. So it was a little bittersweet because I have family and friends there and I would have liked to have done better. But, you know, we were undefeated and going into the playoffs and uh, the rest is history. Yeah, big picture, no big whoop. And there was some honor to being picked by Honor Jackson. After all, he had gotten Earl Morrill earlier in the game as well. Delgazo, not the only guy up north or from up north on the 72 Dolphins, although he was the only one with that thick of a Boston accent. Tim Foley's accent was pure Chicago from the northern suburbs of Chicago before heading off to college at Purdue where Bob Greasy had played as well. Dalgazo remembers the studious member of the secondary, Mr. Foley, who played his entire 11-year NFL career in Miami. My, my best friend on the team was Tim Foley, uh, defensive back, and one of the, just a tremendous guy and a tremendous player. Uh, to see him now, you know, with the mental issues that he has because of the head injuries, it just it breaks your heart. You know, we were... We, uh, the four of us, his wife and my wife were good friends and uh, we spent so much time together and he and I would go out when I, the season, the, that season I dressed from, from the nine games, I was the backup quarterback. We would go out and just play catch an hour before the game when everyone, before the offense and defenses got out together to, to, uh, to do their thing and get ready, we would just go out and play catch together. We were very, very close and, uh, breaks me hard to see what happened to him. Foley is a Dolphin, 22 career interceptions, including three here in 1972. He was one of those guys on the defense like Dick Anderson and Nick Bonacani who had a mind for business and finance as well as football. Foley making a mint, selling Amway products, of all things. And back to Dalgazo, he and the substitutes added another score on this day, an eight-yard run from Hubert Ginn. Ginn's a guy we've hardly mentioned within this podcast series so far. He may have been a starter on other NFL teams, but on a Miami team with Zonka, Kick, and Morris, that essentially left him all but unemployed. Ginn had started and starred at Florida A&M, having grown up in Savannah, Georgia. Eventually, he'd get traded to Baltimore for Don Nottingham to try and get some more playing time. Alas, he hardly played for the Colts either, and subsequently returned to Miami one year after that. So with this game now at 37-7 Miami, 
The Patriots brought in Brian Dowling at quarterback. He was a famous Yale graduate who was a model for the character B.D. in the popular Doonesbury cartoon in the Sunday papers. Dowling, in his best NFL appearance ever, led the Patriots to a couple of late scores, and that would cut your final to 37-21. to The story of this game, the 304 rushing yards the Dolphins had rolled up. No one runner had an unusually high total. This was a total team effort, emblematic of how this team just kept winning week after week. You look at the stats, Mercury Morris, 15 carries for 113. Larry Zonka, 15 carries for 91. Ginn, 8 for 47. Charlie Lee, 7 for 30. Jim Kick, actually the fifth leading ball carrier of the day. Six carries for 23 yards. The Dolphins on the road had outrushed the Patriots 304 yards to 110. And now the team was within sight of the all-time record for rushing yardage in one season, held at this point by the 1936 Lions. And these Dolphins were 308 yards away with two games to go. And these days, that's something that would have gotten plenty of attention. But back then, Larry Zonka said it was basically a collective shrug of the shoulders. I asked him, did you guys think about the rushing record at all then? I don't even think about it now. You'd have to tell me what records we had. The record that was important was the win-loss record. And if we could uh, we could set other records with yardage, and that's great. That's a bonus kind of thing. That's a personal kind of thing. But at the same time, you got to realize that that pales by comparison to your win-loss. And whether you made it to the big one and won it, or whether you made it to the big one and lost it, you know, it defines a whole season after that. You know, it's, it's one thing to be appreciative to get to the Super Bowl. But if you get there and lose it, it just isn't the same. I don't care how well you did during your regular season. It's still just the whole thing just takes on a different shape. So you got to get there, you got to win it. And that's what we concentrated on. And I think had we concentrated a little more, a little sooner, you know, Super Bowl six may have been a little different. Who knows? You know, we, we might have had back there a triple, triple header there. Who knows? But that's always, you know, that's where fantasizers a dream. The reality is we went undefeated, so we got to settle for that. But it always, back of my head, I'm always kicking that around. You know, if we listen to him a little more, maybe it would have made a difference. You know? Hadn't even thought about that, a three-peat. That would have been something. And spoiler alert, that single-season rushing record would fall eventually, and this game certainly helped pad the stats. Added up, Miami had come up with four touchdowns and three short field goals from a short field goal kicker. Garo Yepremian was continuing to have a really nice season. It was continuing to be the forerunner of that beer ad four decades later about the most interesting man in the world. His teammate Charlie Babb had this to say. Well, you know, Garo was a real intelligent guy that had a great sense of humor and he, he physically he wasn't very talented, but I'm gonna tell you, if you ever wanted somebody to kick an important kick, you knew he could do it. I mean, he was a gambler at heart. Uh, he had faith in himself, and uh, I, it couldn't have been anybody better to kick that thing because we we used to we used to play cards and do a lot of things when we had free time and Gerald I mean he believed he could do anything and uh, 
know, he was a small man with a big heart. Beautifully said. And the team's punter, as you'd imagine, got to know Garrow very well. Here's Larry Siple's take. Garrow's a great, great kid. I mean, just a good teammate. Uh, he made great ties. <laughs> but he was he was very good. He was very accurate. And he, he, he worked at it constantly. And my hat goes off to him for what he did coming, coming from Detroit and uh, not having much of a chance. And then in Houston in the preseason game between him and Kremser. And she said, whoever, you know, wins this one here in practice the day before the game, you're going to be on the team next week. So it ended up being Garrow. When you write the narrative about the 72 Dolphins, of course it starts with a no-name defense and the two quarterbacks and the fabulous running backs and the star wide receiver, Mr. Warfield. But you also have to include the little balding kicker from Cyprus. Let's go back to Manny Fernandez. He was asked to reflect on the legacy of the entire 72 team and why all these divergent personalities all became a perfectly stitched patchwork quilt. Oh, well, I, I can tell you how, what I can know about me, I felt like I had been blessed to have been made a part of that group of people. Uh, that team, just a lot of special ball players, a lot of special people, um, good people, and uh, caring people that have stayed together all these years. You know, we look forward to those reunions and We've had them every five years and sometimes fewer when they were inducting players between those five-year intervals. We get, and I mean, those are the, the times I've most looked forward to since uh, I left football, was getting back together with that group of players. They were just, uh, not just teammates, but special people, great friends, uh, and people that you just knew had your back. Now, the guy who was usually in charge on the field was the sixth-year quarterback, Bob Greasy, but he'd been out since week five, hurting his ankle in the San Diego game. And yes, it's true the Dolphins didn't miss a beat in his absence with Earl Morrill, a very capable replacement, but the guys all had tons of affection for the guy who wore number 12. Here's Larry Seipel again talking about Bob Greasy. Well, I think Bob was a genius as far as running the offense. Uh, he and Howard and, and Shoeless would uh, sit down, you know, night before the game, go over the game plan, what they wanted to do. Bob actually ended up calling 99% of the plays, and uh, he relied a little bit on his offensive line. He, he knew who to ask and who not to ask. And, you know, if you ask Mercury Morris, well, he could give me the ball. That's all he wanted to do. But, you know, Bob was very, very smart. Uh, and controlling the offense and doing what we did best when we were running the ball. He didn't worry about throwing the ball down the field unless he absolutely had to. Uh, but he was a good, good, solid quarterback, very intelligent. Well, as sharp as Greasy was both on and off the field, what he also was, was guarded. So many motor mouths on this Dolphins team, great copy as the media guys would call it, but Greasy was never the best quote. Miami sportscaster Tony Segreto said he pretty much gave up trying to squeeze any juice out of the greasy brand of citrus. After all, there were plenty of other guys who were good copy. In terms of copy, 
I'll answer that. Merck was obviously the top guy. Mandich was always very, very good. Uh, Nick Bonacani and Paul Warfield were excellent in a much different way. They were both very cerebral in their answers to you. Paul Warfield, you would ask him a question. I could still hear his voice. He, he almost had a, had a poet's-like voice in answering the questions. He broke down the receiver's position better than anybody I knew, not just as a tutorial for other receivers and for Bob Greasy, but to make it explainable and understandable to the fan who really wanted to learn about the game of football. Uh, so you had, you had those types of guys. And Vern Denherter. Very quiet, yet very, very forthcoming. Manny Fernandez, excellent, excellent interview. Howard Twilley, great interview. No shortage of talkers on this team, that's for sure. And one of the really underrated ones, rookie Eddie Jenkins. And yes, rookies are supposed to be quiet and take it all in. Something Jenkins says he fully understood, arriving out of a small school up in Worcester, Massachusetts, Holy Cross. But he was forced to dive right in. Well, first of all, there was a lot of talent when I got to rookie camp because, you know, the uh, the the whole schedule is different than it is now. It seems like we had close to seven days before the, even the veterans arrived, just rookies and and maybe uh, veterans who were on the bubble. So it seemed like when I got there, there were at least 50, 60 people already, not even including the starters and the, and the veterans. Wow. So that's... So that that set it up, and and that was awesome for me because I came from like a small school who would certainly be maybe at the, what they are now. I think they're Division Two. So it's that kind of school. Even though we played against Syracuse and Army and Boston College, we only had like five thousand students, and I'd only played twenty games in college. My friends told me, "Hey, man, get some autographs. You know, take some pictures." You know, make sure, you know, you can take some pictures with the stars before you come back. <laughs> that's, how much, that's how much confidence that my friends had. Maybe it's just me. Eddie Jenkins and the late comedian Mitch Hedberg sound almost exactly the same. It's uncanny. Let the record reflect. That's been figured out here on this podcast episode number 12. And all due respect to the guys like Jenkins who got into this one late, in the battle of the backups, the Miami B team against the New England B team, well, the Patriots scrubs dropped a quick 14 points in garbage time, which big picture is kind of a shame. As phenomenal as the no-name defense was in 72, allowing an average of just 12 points a game, let's think about this. That number would have been 11 points a game had Brian Dowling not engineered those two late, meaningless touchdown drives on this cloudy afternoon in Boston. But hey, we're looking for pimples on Miss America if we're getting on the 72 Dolphins defense for anything. Even though it says in the record books New England scored 21 points in this game when it was starters versus starters, it was Miami 37, Patriots 7. Most importantly, 12-0 is a record now with the last big hurdle coming into focus the following week. There would be another trip up to the Northeast to take on a playoff contender this time out of the NFC the New York Giants, who had just dropped 62 points on the Eagles their last home game. 62! Ron Johnson, a tough runner. Norm Snead, a veteran 33-year-old quarterback having a career season. And storied Yankee Stadium would be the venue. But we'll save that for next time. This time, 
at brand spanking new Schaefer Stadium in Foxborough, Mass. Once again, your happy final score was Miami 37 and New England 21.